morning, everybody. How y'all doing? So we are so happy to have you all here this morning because we're going to be digging into design. And today we're not going to be talking about what design is. We're going to actually do some design together. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film, Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. The key with all of this is not about the structure of like, is it a small school within a small school? Are there pathways? The whole point of this, right, is actually to make sure that every young person is seen and valued for other ideas. It doesn't matter if it's a small school or a structure, advisory, a project. It's like, how do we ensure that when a young person is going through school, that they're valued for their ideas? And what happens when we have small schools in particular is that the likelihood of radical collaboration and radical interest and all those things happen. But those are not distinct to just being in a small school, right? Those can happen in any classroom, whether you're in a small school or large school. It's like, how are we creating moments within the systems that we're in to really notice and value the voices of young people around us? And I think that's kind of the message that I've left with when I think about her work, you know, from the last decade or so. It's like, how do we do that more often? This is Josh Rapoon, and you are listening to the What School Could Be podcast. Before we start the show, please consider joining the rapidly growing What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your smart device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I look forward to seeing you there. My guest today is Laura McBain. In many ways, Laura's story begins at High Tech High, the school featured in Ted Dintersmith's film, Most Likely to Succeed. Laura was one of the founding faculty. Larry Rosenstock, who started High Tech High and built it into the organization it is today, shared the following with me about Laura. Quote, over the years at High Tech High, Laura did almost every job it was possible to do. Teacher, principal, graduate school instructor. She can hold her own in any conversation about policy, standards, school design, school change. But the most important thing about Laura is she is all about fun, having it, creating it, sharing it. She never loses sight of the fact that learning has to be fun to be engaging. She wants learners of all ages to have those, wow, that's amazing moments. And she makes them happen all the time, end quote. Laura is the K-12 Lab Director of Community and Implementation at the Stanford D School. In this role, she leads the K-12 Lab Network and aims to use design thinking to transform education and the world. As a human-centered designer, her work focuses on understanding the ecosystem of education and finding meaningful opportunities for disruptive design. She is an advocate for equity and social justice work and is leading experiments to ensure more students have access to an innovative educational experience that will help them thrive in a changing world. Previously, Laura was the Director of External Relations 
at the High Tech High Graduate School of Education, meaning she traveled the globe designing and leading professional development focused on the implementation of progressive education, school transformation, deeper learning, and equity initiatives. She has served as a principal of two high-tech sites and has taught middle and high school classes in public charter and comprehensive schools. Laura was the architect of the Deeper Learning Conference, a 1,200-person adult learning experience aimed at activating and galvanizing educators for large-scale change. She is the author of a new book on how failure helps you learn and grow. She hosts a podcast about education and is a long-distance runner. And frankly, all this is not the half of it. Listeners, if there's one thing I would want you to walk away with after you hear this episode, it's this thought. You are allowed to be a masterpiece and a work in progress simultaneously. And now, here's my conversation with Laura McBain. Laura, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get started, listeners, I want to share that this conversation will not be a primer on design thinking or what Laura's K-12 lab does. You can learn all about both at the K-12 lab's website or through any web search. Instead, I'm taking this truly priceless opportunity to talk to Laura about ideas and concepts that while I was preparing for this conversation, put jet fuel in my tank. So here goes. Laura, you hiked the highest peak in the contiguous United States, which means Mount Whitney, a 14,000 foot peak in California. So in education, we sometimes talk about reimagining learning or school change in mountain climbing terms. We prep in base camp and then we head up the mountain. I don't wanna ask this as an educational question. We'll get to that soon. So let me ask, What is the meaning of your ascent up Mount Whitney in the greater arc of the life you have lived thus far? Oh, wow. That's a great opening question, Josh. You know, I am someone who likes a challenge, I will say, first and foremost. And, you know, my entire kind of, I would say, life and adulthood, if you will, has been a series of different challenges. And so when I think of I mean, preparing for Mount Whitney was a really interesting experience because prior to that, I've been, you know, I'd done a couple marathons. So I was like in really good shape. Mm. And so that, had, that challenge had been done. And then I was like, whoa, how do we get to the top of this mountain? And how do I learn something new? And we did a lot of training prior to it, did a couple 11,000 feet mountains. And I think one of the things that is like really interesting when I look back. And Matt Whitney, actually, what's funny that you mentioned this, because I just got a reminder from one of my dear friends who hiked with me last week because it was around my birthday, which was last week. And so we did it as kind of a birthday experience. And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting when you're hiking that type of experience is that so much of it is like mindset. Yeah. Because your body is exhausted. By the time you get to like 13,000 feet, 14,000 feet, you know, either oxygen is low, is low. And the only thing that's propelling you forward is literally your heart. That's it. Like mm-hmm. your body's tired. My boots were hurting me. My birds were too small, actually. So I was like in pain most of the time going down. And I remember like we camped at high camp 
which is around 11, 12,000 feet. We woke up at around 3 a.m., 4 a.m. and did a sunrise ascent for the last kind of couple miles that we had to get it to the top. And it's one of those beautiful experiences. You wake up, you see the sunrise coming over the mountains, which is in the Sierra Nevadas, and you see the sunrise pulling through and you realize, whoa, you're kind of small <laughs> in this whole <laughs> experience. And you realize like that last couple miles, there's like, all it is is heart. There's yeah. no like trained, you've done all the things, your body's okay. But really at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to get you to that very top, top, top thing is like what your heart's going to tell you, like you want to do this thing. Mm. And it's really just moving your body forward with your heart and your mind. Your body lets go at that point and just tells you what to do and you just got to keep going. And I think that kind of is a metaphor for me of just like, you know, we plug and we plug and we plug away the challenges. And then we get to this like moment that's like, oh my God, I cannot go forward. And then there's this like last little piece, like whether it's it's your mind and your heart that you're like, that's the piece you got to pull out. Mm. It's that heart. It's that mindset. It's that piece. Like everything in your body is telling you, this is too hard. I can't go any farther. And you always know, I mean, one thing that hiking that or running marathons has taught me is that like, you always have a little bit left. There's always that one, like you can always take one more step and that step is kind of filled with your heart. Hmm. So perfect segue. You're also an avid marathon runner, as you've mentioned already, even doing five marathons in one year, which is crazy <laughs> to me. That's a lot of marathons in one year, but Though it was many years ago now, Laura, I too was a distance runner. And I recall that some of the most intensely, quote, spiritual experiences of my life happened while I was running and because I was running. So what happens to Laura McBain when she runs? Who is Laura McBain, the runner? I love that question. I mean, so it's so funny. I actually do my best brainstorming and my best thinking while I'm running. Mm. I have planned keynote talks. I have planned deeper, <laughs> I planned a deeper learning conference on a run with a colleague, actually. So I go into this like very open space mind where I just kind of process, you know, through different things in my life. And I, it is a really meditative thing. You're right. It is a spiritual experience because when you're running and nothing else around you, maybe you've got your music on and you're just kind of in your own body, it becomes a very meditative space for me where I really brainstorm. I really think through... I mean, literally, I plan all of my keynotes on a run, mm. most of them, because, because you get out, you don't overthink, you're just kind of running, you're moving your body. And I do think there's something about that of just like, you know, really thinking about like what you want to achieve, just letting go and just like letting it kind of flow out in the best way that it can when you're running. And so for me, like running is such a meditative process where I can just kind of go into my body and like, let my mind spiral in lots of different ways, knowing that like, by the time I finish the run, I might not remember everything, but I've got the nuggets of what I think right. is interesting. Wow. That's so awesome. You know, a couple of things about running. One is after high school, way, way, way back, I guess I spent kind of what people now call up gap year. I just worked as a dishwasher for a year. Then I went to university of Oregon and for a kid coming from Hawaii, that was a really difficult experience. I was intensely homesick during that year that I was in Oregon. I was in Eugene and I ran mm -hmm. everywhere, all the mountains, all the low hills up around. And I think for me, kind of going back to what you were talking about going up Mount Whitney, it was a way to work through so many challenges, some pain yeah. 
and things yeah. like that. I think running is like that, but also maybe the hardest right. experience of my life was the double dipsy. I think, you know, that race up mm-hmm. over the top of Mount Tam, which is 14 miles. And that easily is the hardest thing physically I've ever done in my life. And that heart part that you're talking about where yeah. you're just out of your mind and all it is, is your heart pulling you along, you know, it's pretty yeah. wild like yeah. that. And it sounds like that's kind of what the physical activity of your life does for you. Is that, is that a fair statement? Absolutely. It just reminds you that you're more capable than what you imagine. Mm. It reminds you that your body and your, you have a lot more in you. You know, I think a runner, you'll know this fraying is like, keep some left in the tank. That's a thing. (laughs) Yes. Keep something in the tank till the end. And I think it's a great metaphor for like, you know, everything is like, it reminds you of like self-preservation because you just don't know what the next challenge is going to be. So keep something in the tank, but also know you got something in there, you know, to push you past that finish line, that last part. And I think, you know, I think about the last couple of years and being depleted for like all of us and many of us. And I think that for me running and and the physicality piece just reminds me like, oh yeah, I got to have a little bit more in my tank. And it reminds me, I need to fill that tank quite regularly. You know, you got to take care of yourself. And I think that's for me, you know, the physical part is a really reminder of like for me and for everyone of just like how are we, you know, taking care of ourselves so that we do have that little left in the tank. Yeah. So we can show up through. Yeah. I'm really encouraged, Laura, by what appears to be a national conversation right now about what it actually means to take care of yourself, especially if you're an educator. I'm I'm glad that people are going deeper into that conversation. Yeah. So You know, speaking of challenges, you shared with me that while in elementary school in Maryland, you were diagnosed with an auditory processing disorder and speech impediment, which left you feeling daily left out and underestimated. So in what ways did this end up framing your philosophy of education, of teaching and of learning? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, how things happen over time. And I I mean, I was kind of a, I never wanted to be a teacher. Like, let me get really clear. That was never my intention or an educator. I didn't actually, you know, I didn't major in education. I think I went back to school and got my credential. But I think one of the things that I remember being, I grew up in, in Maryland and was born in Washington, D.C. I was born, you know, after the IDA passed. And so like, you know, one of the things that I feel very grateful for is like, you know, I was able to get services, to be Mm -hmm. honest with you. Like I was able, I was a young child who was, you know, seemingly bright, but struggling. When my friends would go out to recess or have like extra time, I sat off the side. Now this was open space classroom. You might remember there was Josh in the day where they thought all all the classrooms were open. Yes. And right. And so I wasn't pulled into a little room, but I could see my class, you know, across the way. And I would sit there with my, my colleague, Kip Kaidel, who's also special ed student at the time. And we would just work through workbooks mm. and not being said that I, I mean, I, Ms. Long was my teacher. I had a great experience, you know, her and really pushing hard, but I do remember feeling yeah, that, that I knew what, I know what stigma feels like. Like mm. it felt like that. It felt like being left out for recess. It felt like going off to the corner, working on the workbook, and not kind of feeling like I was allowed to be my full self or feeling underestimated in a lot of ways. And I think for me as now, you know, years later, as an educator, you know, I have a very strong, I would say, racial and social justice lens, not because of my race. I was a white woman who actually was able to get help, you know, which yeah. is very 
a sense of privilege and not everyone has that. But I do know what it feels like to feel underestimated. And I think that like, I take that a lot into my running. I take it into like other aspects, but I, it reminds me a lot of like when I work with schools of like, how do we, I really carry that with me, like how we really underestimate the capacities of young people. And because that is an emotional experience for me, mm-hmm. right? It's not a technical experience. I take that into like how I think schools should be run and how we can really create opportunities for young people because I had that experience and I guarantee there's so many young people today who feel like their talents aren't recognized or they feel underestimated in their classrooms because of what a teacher said, the system that's in place. And so, yeah, I carry that with me quite a bit actually as part of my educational kind of philosophy of like, like how do we really not belittle and underestimate the minds of um, young people? Laura, do you remember a particular time in in your early years where you were kind of going through a wake up phase where you were waking up to the fact of your own talents and your own? Yeah. Yeah. What was that moment? So, I mean, really interesting. I mean, this is the power of just like noticing, I think. So when mm. after getting some special education help in up through my elementary school in sixth grade, we got my mom over to married, we moved to Ohio. And I was in a English class, you know, it was like, you know, regular English class, probably the low level English class that they tracked everybody. And my English teacher at the time said to my mom and my parents, they were like, you know, I think Laura in seventh grade should not take the double reading block, Mm. but instead maybe she should take Spanish. I think that would be good for her. You know, she could go in and I, I remember this teacher who decided for my parents, like, I think she could do this. I think it's, she's ready for this. And I remember taking Spanish in seventh grade. I was supposed to take the double block reading, right? Mm. Which, you know, not reading at grade level, all the things we do to help young people thrive. Instead, this teacher was like, she should take Spanish instead. Mm. And I remember for the very first time in that seventh grade Spanish class that like the English language made sense to me. Wow. Grammar made sense to me. Like all these things I was like, oh, that's how that works. And my mind like literally picked up Spanish really quickly. Mm. And I have a minor in Spanish today. Actually, I'm pretty fluent. You know, after a week or two, if you put me in a, in a Spanish country, I'm pretty good nowadays. And it just kind of reminded me like I'm capable in that moment. I'm just like, whoa, mm. I actually have an affinity for languages. Wow. And for that moment, yeah, it was pretty transformational for me. I was like, oh, I'm pretty smart. I can figure this out. Where other friends of mine were really struggling. I was like, this is pretty easy. Hmm. I can do this. And yeah, I ended up getting a minor in Spanish when I was in college by the time I, and I've lived in Costa Rica, you know, learned Spanish down there and, you know, I've traveled quite a bit in Spanish speaking countries. I've given talks in uh, my best Spanglish, if you will, in different countries. Hmm. But yeah, that moment was pretty impactful for me. You know, one of my previous episode guests, Edna Hussey, who's the principal at Mid-Pacific Institute in Honolulu, where, where I'm based, we talked about the hiring astute teachers. That was her word, and we really dug into the word astute. And it sounds like this particular teacher was particularly astute, that yeah. she was picking up something that was really important in that moment, a yeah. shift, if you will. And, you know, I had a similar experience, although much later in my life, very mediocre student within the system as it existed before. But later when I was in college, I was in Spanish, funny, and struggling. So I switched out to Latin. And in studying Latin, I discovered my ability to write, which nobody had commented on 
prior to that, even in school, I was told by a teacher that I had no style. I'm still carrying that comment today. Isn't that terrible? Yeah. You know, yeah. but, but Latin unleashed my ability to kind of uh, write in the English language. And that's, it's so amazing when those decisions have, you know, such impact on our lives. They do. You know, it's absolutely. And it's, you know, funny that you mentioned that. And I, and I know Edna, she's fantastic. Hi, Edna. Is, I think that's partly, I think now, you know, when I think about being a student, I feel like as an educator, I've done something similar noticing, you know, having this like an astuteness or an awareness of like, you know, thinking about what's going on in the classroom and the system, kind of reading and noticing and I think for me, you know, as a designer, that's actually one of the like primary skills a designer needs to yeah. have yeah. is actually this level of awareness and the studentness that you can notice things that are kind of invisible and they may not be present yet. And like unearthing them or finding them or pulling them into more visible light is actually a really important role and skill of a designer that I hold, I hope, you know, as much as I can. Yeah. So Laura, you listed as highly influential, The Power of Their Ideas by author Deborah Meyer which I read when I was in grad school a zillion years ago. And Meyer led the movement to restructure high schools into small, vibrant educational enclaves, schools within a school, housed within the same building. And as you know, I host this podcast from my home here in Honolulu. And it turns out that one of the greatest examples of this concept happened on the island of Kauai back in the 90s, where several large schools made the magnet school within a school concept really work. So what is Meyer's influence on your life, Laura, as a human and as an educator? Yeah. I mean, I've met her a number of times. I've had the honor of like having dinner with her a number mm. of times, actually. She came out to Haidakai and, you know, she's a bit older now, but had the moment of like picking up at the airport and having this like very special moment actually with her. Wow. Yeah. Right. Like, just really, really special. I think the, the piece that I love about Debbie in particular is hearing her stories when she was a teacher mm. and kind of reminding, you know, teachers like this question. She had this beautiful story where she was teaching in New York at the time, I, I think elementary school, obviously. Yeah, she teaches a lot of elementary school and kindergarten. And there was a project or a content or a unit that she was required to teach. And she, you know, was teaching it. And then she realized like the kids didn't like it. They were like, this is boring. So she decided to teach something different. Mm. And then she said to me, she's like, look, the people just stop in every so often. I'm just going to teach what I teach. <laughs> I do what I write for the kids. We like, that's their ideas. And, you know, she just kind of would close the door and like do great projects with kids, you know, 90% of the time. And while that not be available to everybody nowadays, yeah. it just reminded us, reminded me of like <laughs> this question of like the power that teachers do have in the classroom when the door closes. Mm. and the capacity for all of us to do, you know, bring in our own voice, bring in our own power, bring in our own creativity to the lessons that we're teaching. And that's what she did. She was like, it's not working for this, this classroom. I'm going to switch it up a little bit and do something that's meaningful to my young people. And I remember that story and thinking, you know, myself as a, as a teacher in a big high school, when I first started teaching, I'm like, oh yeah, that is kind of what you do in a classroom. And we don't get to say that as much, but I remember that was one of the stories she told me. And I was like, yeah, that's right. You just kind of close the door and do what you want to do. And as someone who has a little rebellious streak that spoke to me, and it just reminds me that we all can kind of do that, you know, regardless of what classroom is in, is kind of you know, bring our own creativity, our own spirit to that space. Mm. You know, I had a similar experience when I was teaching here in Honolulu at a small all-girls school called La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls. And somehow I think 
at that moment in time, Laura, the education gods were looking down kindly on me, you know, for once. And I ended up in a classroom that was at the very edge of campus. And so it was almost as if I had closed the door and become a magnet school within a school. I was yeah. free in my own mind to do whatever I wanted because I was so far away from admin on the other side of campus that I could go for it. And I wonder like about this idea that each classroom or maybe even clusters of classrooms or open spaces become what Deborah Meyer was envisioning in this small schools within schools idea. Like, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely think it's possible. And I think as we, whether it's a classroom or a cluster, I mean, I think the big thing, and I think, you know, you're speaking about what I would consider like a structural issue. And I think, you know, we think about how we cluster. The key with all of this is not about the structure of like, is it a small school within a small school? Are there pathways? The whole point of this, right, is actually to make sure that every young person is seen and valued for other ideas. It doesn't matter if it's a small school or a structure, advisory, a project. It's like, how do we ensure that when a young person is going through school, that they're valued for their ideas? And what happens when we have small schools in particular is that the likelihood of radical collaboration and radical interest and all those things happen, but those are not distinct to just being in a small school, right? Those can happen in any classroom, whether you're in a small school or large school. It's like, how are we creating moments within the systems that we're in to really notice and value the voices of young people around us? And I think that's kind of the message that I've left with when I think about her work, you know, from the last decade or so. It's like, how do we do that more often? Yeah, that's great. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be back in a minute with more questions for Laura McBain. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be?, As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Everyone, we are back with Laura McBain, who along with a previous episode guest, Mark Hines, sits at the very top of my list of deeper learning practitioners, coaches, guides, and mentors. So Laura, in this second section of the conversation, we're going to accomplish the impossible, which is to run a marathon in under the time it takes to run a 10K. (laughs) So I wanna do a brief but deep dive into your work in education. And I wanna do some framing by using the What School Could Be Innovation playlist, which you worked on. So the five themes of the playlist are mobilizing one's community, student-driven learning, real-world challenges, deeper learning assessments, and caring and connected communities. 
So I'm thinking we do a rapid fire round here, a series of four quick responses from you based on four questions, okay? So here's the first one. Whether the step one wants to take a small, medium, or large, what is key to mobilizing one's community around reimagining teaching and learning? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I think the biggest one is how to remove the barriers between the community and the school. Mm. Whether that's through an exhibition, presentations of learning, student-led conferences, how do we invite the community in and how do we have the students go out into the community? The best way to do it is we break down those walls and we get kids out and we invite people in. And the more that we can do that, when people come together through projects and you know experiences that are authentic in and with community, that's how we start. So quick sidebar, I'm already cheating already here. Quick sidebar. What is that first step, Laura? Like, how do you, let's say that you're on a campus that does not connect with the outside community at all. Who takes that first step? What does that feel and look like? Well, I mean, it depends on who it is. You know, I think that like one of the most powerful things I have seen in communities to invite communities is do an exhibition of learning. I, I'm a huge supporter of it. Mm-hmm. And an exhibition of learning is essentially where you invite the community in to see student work. And there's an interesting thing that happens when you do that. One, teachers realize, oh my gosh, I have to get some stuff to exhibit. And all of a sudden work gets created or you find interesting ways to put work together. And the second thing is, is that all of a sudden we start placing value, not on test scores, but on like the work that students are doing. And I think an exhibition of learning where you're bringing people in and you're inviting community members to see the work that students do places a lot of value and power on the work that students are creating in schools. Mm, Okay. So, so let me just, because that was actually going to be one of the questions I was going to ask you. So about deeper learning assessments. So so from a particular angle though, you wrote in an article for Ed Week, which is titled, what do the walls say? That's the title. So allow me to rephrase that question and ask, what could the walls say? And how does what the, what the walls say reflect where a school is at on traditional versus progressive assessments? Yeah. I mean, thanks for referencing that article. I think that's, uh, it's an oldie, but a goodie. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that is what I think is interesting about when we think about, I mean, this goes back to another mentor and so this is not a short answer, I guess, but it actually goes back to Ted Sizer is like, what are the, and allegedly, you know, he said the biggest resources you have is time, people and and, and space. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most undervalued resource in schools are actually the walls because they're static, they can be there. And I think one of the key things that we can use when we're thinking about, I would say curation in schools is like the value of how student work can be displayed in schools actually sends a message about what you care about. And so it automatically flips the conversation to, do we care about test scores or do we care about student work? And the display, the curation of student work in schools doesn't become the like, look at how great our work is. They actually become an opportunity to have a conversation about Mm -hmm. what is this work? Why are we doing it? They become like really a provocation Mm -hmm. about what is the work our school needs to be doing. And it becomes a form of assessment, absolutely. But more than an assessment, it actually becomes an invitation to a conversation Mm -hmm. about what the work we're doing in our schools. If you go into a school and it's one of those things, again, being a designer, the first thing I look at when I walk into a school is what's on the walls. And I look first and foremost, is it, you know, posters that were made by some random company or, you know, is it some trophies that are like 19 from 1930s? Is it a mural that was done 50 years ago? Like I look at those things because those send messages to what the school cares about. 
Awesome. So here's the third one then. What magic happens when students drive their learning and why do students want real world challenges? It's a good question. I mean, one, I think students find what they're interested in. I mean, I think that one of the big things that we need to do better about in school is like allowing students to develop their own curiosity. And so when students drive their learning and actually get curious about content, about ideas, it allows them to become more curious people. And I think learning is all about curiosity. And so when you notice students getting excited and driving projects themselves, it's not that they're just driving this content. It actually, what I've noticed is curiosity. Hmm. I notice they're starting to think and they get excited about something. And when you think about like lifelong learning, 21st century learning, you know, I think that like the marker of a good school is our students leaving more curious about the world, about the content, about the ideas, you know, than when they found it, when they came in Hmm. with more questions. And I think that's why I think it's most interesting. Yes, they develop collaboration. Yes, they develop creativity. Yes, they develop content. Yes, they have agency. Yes, they have more power. And I think most importantly, they get curious. And I think that's what learning is about. And that's where the magic happens. Perfect. So last one in this quick, rapid round, caring and connected communities sounds like an education buzz phrase. So why is it important, Laura? What's the argument for schools to start with a caring and connected culture as its North Star rather than, let's say, academic goals? I think there's a piece missing is that learning is an evocative experience. It is connected to emotions. So if you don't actually have a caring culture, how could you possibly learn? Yeah. So, I mean, that to me is the, is the primary answer is that like to have a caring community, we kind of separate, I think, learning from emotion often. And anything that we have learned, I think you learn in your life is connected to a feeling you had, whether it's good, bad, challenging. And so when we have a caring community, it supports us when we're celebrating and it also holds us when we're struggling. And we think about learning as really this evocative up and down, you can call it, you know, Angela Douglas Griff, you can talk about agency, whatever you want to, you can frame it up, productive struggle, as they say. But when you do that, when you have a caring community that actually notices what's going on, you actually can have a, you know, a really vibrant learning community. They're not separate. Wow. You know, that's so interesting, Laura. You know, once again, as often happens in these conversations, I feel like I want to be back in school again. You know, what what you're really saying there is that education is all about emotion. And I wonder that over more than 100 years, the prime directive was actually to suppress emotion. Yeah. You, you were to sit in your rows and you were to receive information, but you weren't to evoke in that way. And I think maybe that's why I struggled in school, or it's at least one of the reasons mm-hmm. why is because... I'm not that kind of person. I I do want to evoke in a way, you know, and that's, that's so cool. Yeah. Okay. So rapid round number two, here we go. So Laura, I'm going to quote something you wrote again on medium, a post titled educator as futurist and moving beyond quote, preparing for the future and to shaping the future. So bear with me. It's a long quote, but important. So you wrote, educators shape the mindsets, behaviors, and skills their students will carry with them into the future. And while this has always been true, the global pandemic, nationwide public attention to social justice, and the need to dismantle historically inequitable systems have heightened our collective sense of urgency to design more equitable and abundant futures with and for 
our students. This moment has made us realize that we cannot just prepare students for the future. We must help them develop the imagination, agency, and will to shape the future. Okay, so in another rapid round, and then we'll take a second break in a little bit. My first question around this is, I suspect that for most folks, the conventional wisdom is that it's the elites, those other folks who are shaping the future, like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or Darren Walker of the Ford Foundation. The list is very long. But you were proposing, Laura, something entirely different. So what is that? Yeah. I mean, I think all of us have the capacity to shape the future, whether you're an educator or a student. And I think that's actually when I think about when we create, you know, what we call visions of coexistence. There has been a long line, as you said, of folks who are futurists like Elon, you know, who are shaping how we live in the world. And I actually think we are sitting at this moment where everyone, because of the technology we have, because of the, the vast reach we have around the global trade that we live in, have the capacity to offer and contribute something to shape the future. Not just the five people that are in Silicon Valley, but everybody. And I think that's the really interesting thing is like I was recently at, you know, the Futures Museum in DC. And one of the big things that we noticed was like, we just presented there actually about two weeks ago. And how do we move from like one voice, three voices that are shaping and dictating the future to like all of us having a shape and a voice in the future? That's what it means actually for all of us to be, I think, think about being a futurist or thinking about being a futurist for education or for equitable futures is that if we are actually going to have a more inclusive world, then we've got to have more people being shapers, not just receivers of the future. So you said in the medium piece that embracing the mindset of an educational futurist requires a foundational shift. So what is that shift? I mean, I think this is a big one. I, you know, I came upon this, I think it goes back to the early start of the conversation is like, one, I think it requires us to really think long-term. Most schools, I think we are thinking a lot about what happens at the end of the school year. We focus on outcomes like graduation rates. We focus on what I would call short-term gains, you know, test scores by year. And while those are, you know, somewhat important and they're good metrics, we actually don't have kind of metrics for what it means to develop schools for the long term, Mm. like what it means for 20 years. I think it's really funny to me, you know, and I think about the world that's changed over the last, you know, my lifetime and your lifetime. And we have a lot of things in play around how we might prepare young people for the future. And most of that is around content. Like they need these math skills and those math skills. And to be honest with you, like we have no clue. We always say this, we actually don't know the jobs, you know, that the young people will have when they graduate. And yet we actually teach content as if we know what content they will need. Mm. And so I think part of what I think shaping is moving the predictability within schools, right? And also developing the students to think about their own skills, to learn new content, to be lifelong learners, to make shift, to see the trends that are happening in the world. We like to call sense-making or trend-casting, understanding how trends are changing. If someone's going to be successful, you know, there's a recent study at the Longevity Institute at Stanford that says like young people born today will live to like a hundred something. They might have six or seven careers in their lifetime, six or seven. So if you think about that, right, and you think about that data and you're like, okay, well, what does that mean as an educator? It has less to do with making sure they understand the content, which is, you know, important, but also like how they get better at noticing how the world is changing and why, mm. and what is their role in that? 
if I'm going to actually prepare young people to the future, I really need to get them better at researching and seeing the future. And most of the time in schools, my colleague Lisa K. Solomon likes to say, we teach the past, we don't teach the future. And so I think our provocation around thinking about educators of future is how do we move from teaching the past in schools, but helping young people see how the world is changing. Mm. And so they can actually start shaping their lives. That's the power of that deeper, I would say, higher level agency that we're talking about. Mm. Okay. So how do you address concerns that it's great to train and equip kids to shape the future, but that the future can be skillfully shaped for evil purposes? So I'll give you a specific example that I'm thinking of. You have a young person and they've gone through everything and they're, they're just really skilled as designers and thinking into the future. But the product that they're working on, for example, would be a surveillance mechanism using AI that can track people. Like, how do you deal with things like that? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we're really interested, especially in design and, and futures is like, what is the impact? What is the long-term impact that the things we're making will have? So I'll, I'll say, for example, you know, and I think you and I have a lot of connections to like maker movement, right? Mm-hmm. Maker stuff. And one of the things that I think, you know, I will say as someone who's a maker, I feel like so much of the conversation was like, let's get the tech in the hands and let's have fun with this and be excitement. Yeah. But we didn't ask the question, well, what would the impact of this tech be? Who might be hurt? You know, who might be harmed? Who will benefit? And so part of what I think we're asking folks to do, and you're right, is thinking about the future is not just how are you going to shape it, but like, Shaping means really looking out to the long-term. What are the consequences? What are the unintended consequences you think this technology, this thing that you built will have in the future? While you cannot control it, we need to get better at asking the question about like, yes, I can build it, but should I? Yeah. And that's what I think we're talking about there. That's how we, that's the beginning way of how we get there. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, a couple more in this rapid round. So Laura, here in this moment, despite all the work I try to do to hopefully shape the future, I'm increasingly feeling like the world is sliding into a dark age and I have zero control over what happens next. So you have so much contact with young people. What are they thinking in this moment? Do they share what I'm feeling in this moment or are they optimistic or what are they thinking? I mean, one, I think we should ask young people. I don't want to speak for them. But I mean, I think it's an interesting mix. You know, I meet people that are very excited about the future, you know, and people that feel like because of their, the capacity for them to have a quick impact, whether through social media, you know, you see people that are excited about their possibility to make change. And then, you know, I also have worked with a lot of young people who are overwhelmed by digital technology, for example, and feel like very much like digital well-being is really challenging for them. And so I think the question about like, what are young people feeling? I think right now is probably a little bit of like, it's like, I mean, it's not a binary. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. It's a spectrum of like, some days you might feel optimistic and some days we might feel overwhelmed. And that's like all of us, you know, we all feel that way. And so I think part of like, when I think about how, you know, what are young people feeling? I think it's like, they're going to feel a lot of things. And I think for my job as an educator is actually to find out how they're feeling. And then when they are feeling positive or negative, what are the levers or support mechanisms I need to put in place to honor that emotion and those feelings? Hmm. You know, I can't control that or predict those emotions, but I can be of support when they come up. Which means you're not just giving the person the ability to fish, you're actually handing them the rod and reel. Yep. Right? That's right. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. As it turns out, there's a couple more. So the K-12 Labs Futures Fest a year and a half ago, January, 2020, 
brought together educators from all around the country to showcase some of their newest prototypes. So Laura, what prototypes? And maybe listeners would love a specific example of something really interesting that you saw as a prototype. Yeah. I mean, I actually think I'll name two actually in particular Cool. for the first prototype that we were, which is now no longer a prototype. Okay. You know, we brought together our colleagues, Ariane Mogos, who worked with Jennifer Gasper Santos, along with a few others to prototype a magazine on emerging technology called Rep. It's mm. out of our lab and it's called Rep Magazine. You can buy it online, but it's an analog magazine to teach educators and the rest of us as students about emerging technologies. I like to call it, it's the highlights version of emerging technology. Mm. Blockchains and bio, quantum computing, like how do we bring this technology into each other's hands in a really lo-fi, artistic, analog way? So it's really teaching tech without the tech. And so that uh, workshop that we led at the Futures Fest is now morphed into a magazine that we are now kind of selling and and distributing to districts which allow educators and young people to teach and learn about emerging tech. Wow. And then the other one is actually pretty apropos of this moment. Our colleague, Barry Spiegels, who actually was an architect after Sandy Hook, actually, and helped redesign Sandy Hook. He created kind of, I would say, questions to your answers about school safety Mm. and moving from fear to joy in schools. And so his prototype that he built out, which is now available, which is a series of questions for communities about how what it means to feel safe, not just be safe in schools, but what it means to feel safe around school safety. So that project was centered on reimagining school safety. So moving from like lockdown drills, but really thinking about what does it mean to feel safe in schools? And it's a series of post-its actually with questions that are held in this beautiful packet, but put out to schools about how they can have conversations about what it means to feel safe right now in schools, particularly in, in the wake of massive gun violence. And so that's available on our site as well. But that was a prototype that now has morphed into this really cool packaging product that was distributed by superintendents kind of right at the height of the pandemic. Wow. That's so inspiring, Laura. Wow. That's just, that's put fuel in my tank. So, okay. So one more here. And again, I'll remind listeners that we're talking about an article that Laura wrote on Medium titled Educator as Futurist, Moving Beyond Preparing for the Future to Shaping the Future. So this one, you know, you can tell already, Laura, that your piece on Medium really sent me down a rabbit hole. I've I've Mm -hmm. just been thinking about it and thinking about it for such a long time. And so this might seem a little bit weird, but let's roll with it. So what is the difference between the skill of decision-making and the ability to shape the future? And I ask this because I trained my students over 17 years to ask questions and make decisions, but I sense something different in being a shaper of the future versus a decision-maker. I mean, I, I think that's a great question. I think one of the things that we've been working now in particular is working in the past year, we've been working with superintendents, for example, And I think one of the key things we're shifting and helping superintendents move from is like what they call linear strategic plan, which is like, here's my vision. Here are the three things I'm going to do to accomplish that. And in order to shape the future, to equitably shape the future, I think we have to move from this kind of linear concept of what we think strategic planning is, which is like, here is this decision I am making and let's, you know, move beyond it. Versus what I, which was not coined by me, but Adrian Marie Brown, really an emergent process 
is how do we actually shape the future in community, which means having a general North Star, but actually sensing how a decision or how an idea is actually impacting community and moving more like an ecosystem or a universe than a full parallel one line, this is my direction I'm going. Hmm. Which I think when we think about this, it's actually quite challenging because part of like, I think there's a sense of safety and security in schools. Like, here's my decision, I'm going to make it. And there's a sense of confidence, right, within that. However, most leaders and all of us know that when we make decisions, it's not the decision, it's the ripple effect Hmm. (laughs) that actually happens afterwards. And so part of what we're thinking about shaping is actually getting better at not just having one decision, but what I like to call seeing in multiples, seeing possible ways forward, multiple ways forward, and actually prototyping those in small ways to actually test how they might land in communities. That's what it means to shape with community, not to say I just made this decision and I hope it lands, but actually how do we see multiple pathways forward? That's an emergent approach. And I think that's kind of where we're shifting. And that's a really key for a leader is actually having lots of ways forward and sharing those prototypes, sharing those pilots, because you're actually testing and seeing how they're impacting the community, not saying, here's an idea, here's the decision, and let's hope that it works. Wow. So, Laura, yesterday, before we go to break, I just have to say, yesterday I had breakfast with our previous podcast guest, Alex Teese, who's the founder of Dreamhouse Academy, which is a public charter school here on Oahu, and it's focused on identity and leadership. And his... I guess, director of curriculum or dean of academics left to take a job at Google. And Alex and his faculty took that moment to completely reimagine what the whole hierarchy of school is all about. And they've decided not to hire for that position, but they've started through an iterative process of figuring out who does what, when, and what decisions get made when and how. And that's what you're describing right there. Yeah. You know, it's seizing a moment right in front of you and saying, let's chart a different path here because it's worth doing because it's the creative and kind of inquiry thing to do. Let's find out a little bit more about ourselves. And I also think from a really like, long, and I'll, I'll just double in on this. And again, you and I spent a lot of time with schools around the country mm-hmm. and, and in Hawaii in particular. And I think one of the challenges that we say is like, do this one thing. Like if you do this, that will get you to the next step which feels like good advice, right? You want that to be. And whether it's an exhibition or things we talked about. And I think to really think about being a shaper and a futurist is actually thinking about not the one thing that I'm going to do. What are the hedging of the bets that I'm actually placing? It's a bit more work, but it actually allows you to be a little bit more creative, a little bit more curious about how we move forward. And I think that's kind of the key here is like not just take the one thing and hope it works out, but actually, what are the multiple ways I can actually learn how which one is going to learn with my community and which one feels right right now? And that's the kind of hedging or testing or emergent strategy that I think all of us as school leaders or teachers, what have you, want to embrace right now, because that allows us to actually co-design with community. It actually allows us to see what's testing and what is causing harm, what is who's benefiting. It allows us to see pretty quickly if we're prototyping across multiple modalities it allows us really quickly to see what's the impact of our work. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be back in a minute with more questions for Laura McBain. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. 
I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Everyone, we are back with Laura McBain, the Director of Community and Implementation at Stanford D School's K 12 Lab, among many other things. So, Laura, prior to today, I did not know you are a published author. So your book, co-authored with Ronald Baghetto, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is titled My Favorite Failure, How Setbacks Can Lead to Learning and Growth. So thought leader Yong Zhao called it a fantastic book, and Stanford professor Robert Sutton said, and I quote, my favorite failure is filled with stories that made me laugh, cry, squirm, and realize I am not alone. And Sutton also said, quote, the authors spare us from those tired old arguments about celebrating and screw-ups and setbacks, unquote. So what did he mean, and what did you and Baghetto set out to do with this book, Laura? Well, one of the things, you know, and I think part of what I've learned is like, you know, one of the big things around this book is, one, we don't teach failure. That's actually the biggest insight <laughs> in school, is that we talk about it. Like in any classroom, you begin the year with, here are the rubrics to be successful. We do that a lot. Yep. We actually don't spend time anticipating what it's going to feel like to fail. And so part of the impetus behind this book is to actually pull, actually to help people think about how they teach failure in schools. Because if you're truly learning, you will fail. Like there's no actual learning without failure. We know you and I both know that. So mm -hmm. we should think about how we design that. And then I think the thing that Bob was getting at was actually like, there's a lot of really interesting slogans I have heard, like bias to failure, you know, failure first, all the things you've heard. And then there's this like myth, if you will, I've heard a lot, particularly in like startup culture, that I've had 12 startups and now my billion dollar company, you know, is this. And I feel like some of those stories, while interesting, are actually not that accessible. Mm. And so part of the impetus behind the book is to move beyond the slogans, but actually think about or the taglines around failure, but actually unearth what we like to call the mosaic or the quilt of failure. Hmm. Like what are the emotions? What are the experiences that really change how people shape their lives or think about who they are as a way to think about how failures really shape them and shapes the world around them and how they entertain and engage with others. And so the book for us was really an opportunity to highlight real life stories of failure, the everyday failure moments that we all have had in our lives and how do we get better at seeing those and then also supporting each other when we are failing. Mm -hmm. So perfect segue to a specific example that I want to run by you, Laura. So, you know, this podcast is inspired by the documentary film, Most Likely to Succeed, which spends the first 15 minutes making the case for the need to reimagine schools in this age of acceleration 
And then it features one school, which you were at, High Tech High in San Diego. So I've screened the film many, many times. I've always wanted to ask someone who was at High Tech High during the filming about the story of Brian, who in the summer after school ends, eventually and dramatically succeeds in finishing a group project, but alienates and angers some members of his team because of his procrastination that clashes with his uber ambition. So the film portrays him in a heroic light from failure mm -hmm. to triumph, but the story is pretty complex in my mind. So what are your thoughts about Brian and failure and working in teams? I mean, that's a great one. I mean, and I know Brian, as you said, I was actually at the school when we were filming. I think my office became the Dropbox for a lot of the filmmaking equipment with Greg and, you know, the whole team when they were filming for a year or two. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I, you know, and this is the key actually that I think is one of the, the setups and I'll, and I'll push back a little bit is like people assume success and failure is a binary. I succeeded or I failed. I failed this and I, you know, I succeeded at that. And I think one of the key things is that, you know, for Brian individually, he had a lot of setbacks, right? And he also failed with his group members. And eventually he had success within the project that made him feel good. Yeah. And I think that like, that is actually the more nuanced approach. It's not that he wasn't a bad group member. He might've been, yeah, that's very possible. He also had a moment of success for himself. And I think that is actually the more interesting piece is like how we set up these binary ideas. Well, he was a good group member, which means he failed. You know, that I can tell you right now, like he, how he approached groups later changed because he did fail. And then how he set deadlines for himself did change because he succeeded at finishing a project. His feeling of feeling successful at the end changed. So they're not an either or. Mm. And I think that's one of the key things is that like, you know, we don't set up this young person and they, you know, didn't do well by their team and then they failed at that. No, no. I mean, it's really a much more nuanced reaction about like, that is actually the reality of, of most lives. Like sometimes you don't get the project done. Sometimes you, you know, anger your teammates and collaborators. And I think one of the things that the story does is set up like a vision of this young man, you know, trying to be successful in this young project. And I mean, one thing behind the scenes is that his teammates also did amazing work, right? Who actually supported him when he was struggling quite a bit. And just because they got frustrated doesn't mean they actually didn't show up and support him. And I think that's actually the key thing is like, they might've shown frustration because that's a good story. But I also know I was at that exhibition myself personally, you know, where you show the big wheel, I walked around it, you know, yeah. and was part of there. And you saw the prototypes. I talked to Brian in those moments and there was a lot of work that didn't get put into the film. And I think that's the key is that it's way more nuanced. And yes, you can be frustrated with team members. Yes, you can let them down. And you can also have success in other ways. And I think that is the key message it happens in schools all the time. It's like, how do we see more of the nuance, the whole story, mm. not just I failed at being a group member and I succeeded in the project. It's a lot more complicated than that. And we need to get better, I think, as educators, noticing all the different stories. Mm. That's awesome. That's so interesting. I've, his story is just endlessly fascinating to me. And I think that the complexity of it is where the fascination comes in. There are just so many, as you said, so many different facets to this, so many different angles to what was actually happening in that moment. But of course, yeah. films are often reductive in the way that they have to take one particular part of the storyline and feature it. 
Otherwise, they would be hours and hours long, right? So that's right. just so interesting. And I just, yeah. I'm just tripping, Laura, that you were there while the thing was being filmed and they were putting oh, yeah. equipment in your, in your <laughs> office, you know, that's just, it's, it's such an intense film for me. I mean, a backstory is, you know, when it premiered at Sundance, none of us had seen the film yet. Yeah. So that's a really crazy thing. I that will is. say is when it premiered, I went and I was with Larry and, you know, Ted and all the folks and none of us had seen the film. So to see, we had no idea, like to the extent that High Takai was going to be focused on in the film. Yeah. Like we knew a little bit and Greg gave us a little heads up. A few of us all went to go see it, but we had no idea that was going to be the the primary feature of the film. Wow. A scary moment to be like, okay, I mean, I know that I probably got a little bit more of a heads up, but it was definitely like, okay, we didn't know. What we, that was the first time we all sat and watched the film through. Right. All right. So yeah. you all sat there and fastened your seatbelts and said, okay, we're in for a ride here, you know? Yeah. yeah. With hundreds of other people, you know, yeah. lots of other people, maybe a thousand other people in the, in the theater. Yeah. Yeah. And the film has been seen more than 12,000 times in community screenings around mm. the country. So, okay. So Laura, you were a keynote speaker at the 2018 PBL World Conference. And I watched a video replay of your talk and right out of the gate, you said you wanted to talk about comfort and discomfort. So mm. what are the most uncomfortable topics of conversation in education here in June of 2022? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, discomfort and comfort. I mean, that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, one thing that I think about now a lot, I mean, I think we could, you know, easily, I think a lot of the discomfort, although I, I think we're getting more comfortable talking about racial injustice in systems in schools, like I think that's a more comfortable piece. I actually think the things that are most discomforting are the ones we haven't quite figured out yet. So like one of the most, I would say more discomforting, but most real is like, for example, the great resignation that's happening in education. We, I don't feel we're anywhere near solving it. Yeah. And we see massive amounts of teachers retiring. You know, there's, I think I saw an NBC thing and talking about, you know, substitute teachers. I did a, a query with a bunch of superintendents and they're, one of the things is they don't have a substitute pipeline anymore. And it's something that's happening every day, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's a comfortable topic because we don't have an answer yet. Yeah. And so I think that's a big one. I also think that like the continuing thing is funding is a big one that continues to rise up and how we do this. I think the one that's actually discomforting, partly because I don't think we know what it is, is how AI is going to shape classrooms in the next decade. Mm. I think it's an area that like needs a lot of work and it's happening really quickly. And we're going to see, you know, lots of apps, lots of online classrooms popping up. And I don't think we've really talked about like in the light of the pandemic and the advancement of emerge AI, for example, or AI as teacher, what is the role of the teacher going to be? And that's an area that needs a lot of conversation because it really does go into a discomforting place about really reimagining the purpose and role of a teacher in the light of, you know, I would say adaptive online AI embedded curriculum. Mm. May I ask you about one that I picked up that you talked about in your talk? Yeah, please. Yeah. So you talked about the discomfort of realizing as a teacher that you've been following a pretty traditional path for a long time and that you know that you're in that moment where you have to start making some changes to your educational practice. That's a very difficult moment to go through as an yeah. educator. I wonder what you think about that. Yeah. 
I mean, I had that <laughs> it's moment. Huge. Yeah, it's huge. And I will say, I mean, you know, when you look on paper, I was teaching in a comprehensive high school with 3,000 kids or so. I had like, it had this weird experience where all of a sudden I was teaching like, you know, emerging bilingual students. They called it ESL at the time. And then I eventually started teaching AP classes. And when you think about the like trajectory of schools, it's really weird. Like, you know, some of the teachers get the AP classes, you know, it was just kind of this really weird moment, yeah. which is kind of the like lifeline of teachers of how they get sequenced through. And I remember being in teaching amazing young people. It was AP classes that I was teaching at that point. I kind of had a really good setup. I was co-teaching. I was teaching AP role history and like honors ninth grade. And I co-taught with an amazing teacher, but it was also, I will say, I was a little bored not to say it because like the the kids all did their homework. They all showed up. They were just like really good. And I personally was like, this can't be it. Like I'm going to teach the same content for the next 20 years in the same way. Yeah. And that for me was a discomforting and actually led me to leave, um, give up my tenure and go teach at, you know, at High Takai, which is a pretty discomforting piece where all of a sudden after five years, you know, of being a teacher, I felt like a first year teacher again. And I had to radically shift like my sense of, I would say, power of like who's in charge, what are the projects we need to do. And I remember talking, this is probably like three or four months into my first year there. And I remember making this like really interesting, I don't know, for me at the time, it was an insight, but I remember saying to my principal at the time, Ray Trinidad, that I was like, again, this is probably in 2005 or 2004, something like that, Josh. But I remember saying to him, Mm. that I don't see myself as a teacher. I see myself as a facilitator. Mm. Wow. And that's what I remember saying. I was like, and that had a very like different, it changed the way I thought about myself as a teacher. I was no longer a teacher at that moment. I was like, no, I'm a facilitator. My job is to facilitate them to do stuff that's interesting to them versus I am a teacher that's giving them content. And that was a lot. I mean, I will say that first year, you know, partly because we were building the school. So if you're ever built a school, it's really exhausting. So a lot of tears, a lot of discomfort across the board. But that was one of mine as I remember really shifting into, you know, becoming a project-based learning teacher for the first time and really shifting my, my identity because I was, you know, I went to school to believe that my job as a teacher was to deliver content, care for young people and be in front of the classroom. And all of a sudden I was no longer in front of the classroom. And my job was to actually make sure I wear really good running shoes because I had students working at different places around the school and I was helping their group work happen. Mm. A very different level way of facilitation versus teaching. Mm. You know, Laura, way, way back, I mean, going back to the beginning of the conversation when you talked about your the ideas that come to you while you run or while you're hiking and all of that, I was in that AP grind as well, teaching APUS. Ugh, horrible, horrible grind those courses are. And I remember I was swimming laps one day and I had this thought in my head. I'm like, I'm so frustrated with this. To hell with it, I'm gonna teach the course backwards. And yeah. I don't know why that thought popped into my brain, but I remember getting out of the pool and going, wow, I think I just planted my flag on something. Yeah. And I went back in and talked to the students about it. And if you've ever taught history backwards, it's a wild experience because you're looking in the rearview mirror at the future and you're going backwards. Right. And so I just remember that as like a moment, just like you were describing of just like, okay, something different is happening here and I'm going to keep going and go through it. Right. 
I totally agree. I mean, I remember teaching my first project in high high and I was supposed to teach, you know, sequential units, you know, like, and they gave us the freedom to do whatever we wanted. So I was like, I'm not teaching with that. I'm going to start with this unit. I'm going to start with industrial revolution because that was interesting to me. Mm, because right. I knew the history is about trends, right? Yes. Yeah. I need to zoom in and zoom out. And I was like, I can teach it not in a very sequential way. I can actually teach it you know, and to zoom out and zoom in into periods, which allowed us, which allowed me to do more interesting work. But to your right, be able to look at different ways the, the world is changing with the young people. Yeah, that's awesome. So Laura, this hour has gone by so fast and it's been such a blast. And I, I have one more topic for you. So I love to end episodes by having guests shout out to a giant upon whose shoulders they stand. And you noted Larry Rosenstock as one of those giants and said yeah. he taught you so much. So who is Larry, this founder yeah. of High Tech High, and what blessings did he bring to your life, your teaching, your leading? How did he shape the arc of your life, Laura? Yeah, I mean, I think he and Robert and, you know, very much mentors to me. I mean, Larry is the, was the founder of High Tech High, is now since retired in the last year or two. But I think one thing as a leader that really, and again, it's the same pedagogy that we use with young people, is, you know, let people make mistakes. So part of what I've learned from him is that, like, you need to let go as a leader, as a classroom teacher, and give people opportunities to own something and let them try, let them own it, you know? And I think probably even more importantly, more importantly, is that when, whether it's young people or someone you're, you're leading as a staff member or a principal or whatever, is that when people do make mistakes or fail, you get to forgive them and give them another chance. And I think that level of, of forgiveness and I would say humanity is that we're when you give people opportunity to open the doors to let people take on things, there is a likelihood that things might not go so well and people will make mistakes, they will fail. And I think one of the things that you know Larry taught me was just like, you know what? You forgive them easily because they're human and they, people will make mistakes and you keep loving on them and you give them the next moment. And I think that level of, of care and humanity and humility, I hope for me as a leader is a really resounding you know, message that I keep going back to is just like, I say yes when my staff asks me to do something. I'm like, yes, you should do that. Let's make it work. I also know that my job is also to support them when they fail. And I think for me, that's one of the big lessons that he taught me is like, you know, practice humility, but then also you know, support people in their celebrations and then also doubling down when they do make mistakes and fail. Mm, that's awesome. So Laura McBain at the K-12 lab at the D school at Stanford University, thank you for being part of this show today. And thank you for all the insights that you've brought to our listeners. We hope that you and your big extended educator family stay safe and in good health. And we wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks, Joss. This was great. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurahara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders 
by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is sponsored by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow us on Twitter at WSCB Podcast or at Josh Rapoon. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline, stay safe and please get vaccinated. Most of all, bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.